looking at Mark again. Remember, this is the action-packed gospel made for the Roman audience. And uh, with this, uh, there's not much of Jesus' teaching recorded. But guess what? Chapter 4 actually has some of Jesus' teaching recorded in it. Amazing, but true. And it's, it's not pure action. And so uh, now for all of you, you know, words, idea-based people, you know, I do have to warn you that the teaching is all in story form. So, uh, you know, I can just hear, you know, back in the day with some of the Roman audience and, and maybe even some here in the Asheville audience today, you know, possibly saying in their minds, oh man, when is this gospel account going to give us some meat? I mean, some real teaching instead of this entertainment-based stuff, stories. Well, for the majority of chapter 4, we have four stories that Jesus tells us. And the scriptures say that story time is really teaching time. Yeah, story time by the lake is really teaching time. And this is specifically mentioned here in this uh, chapter. It's recorded in Mark that this was the major way that Jesus taught the masses of people uh, at other times. In verse 33, it says this, with many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. But when he was alone with his own disciples, he explained everything. Well, I'm really trying to be like Jesus. And in that, I'm trying to get better at telling stories, but I'm not quite there yet. And I I really wish I could be better at bringing eternal truth to you in a way that stimulates your imagination the way that Jesus did. Maybe someday, maybe someday I'll get there and I'll be able to do that. And and I'll just tell you stories. And then everybody who really wants to understand or know more and and really follow Jesus will have a little explanation time afterwards. Um, But today you're going to just have to suffer through some explanations, all of us together. Uh, those who like stories and those who don't and those who get it and those who don't. So what, first of all, what is a parable? A parable is, is, is usually simply an earthly story designed to communicate heavenly or spiritual meanings. Parables are the most engaging forms of teaching in Scripture. And yes, another word for engaging is entertaining. Yeah, entertaining means to capture and engage someone's mind. And that's what Jesus did with these parables. Sometimes they were extended tales with character and with plot and and development. Sometimes they were just little more than just figures of speech and nothing more. But they illustrated truth through comparisons or examples drawn from everyday life. Jesus wasn't the first to use them. Uh, You'll find them in the Old Testament. I don't know if you remember the, the story of Nathan the prophet when he came to David to uh, rebuke him for his, his adultery with Bathsheba. And he told this story of a, a, a shepherd, a poor shepherd and a rich man. And, and uh, anyway, uh, most of Jesus' parables have one central point, And there's no need for any kind of fanciful, speculative interpretation. To find the central meaning, it, it's really simply good to know what the earthly example meant to the people in Jesus' day. And then to understand that Jesus' parables were expressions of his view of God, his view of humanity, his view of salvation, and his view of the kingdom that was being inaugurated, that was being started through his very ministry, his preaching and his teaching. Also, you can get insight into Jesus' parables by noting who is in the audience 
when he tells the parable or looking at if there's something that happened right before he tells a parable. So why would Jesus tell parables and not explain them to everyone? Why would he do that? That kind of seems like, that's not fair. I want to know too. Well, the answer to that question really follows with the main idea of of three of the four parables that he tells in this chapter. You see, they're all about seeds, seeds that grow and that transform. Just as biological faith unfolds slowly, so do our spiritual lives. God offers us what we can understand as soon as we can handle it, but not before. You know, most parents would consider, um, you know, an explicit lesson on sexuality to be premature for preschoolers, most parents. Uh, Likewise, driving lessons for first graders would probably be inappropriate, right? Yes. In the same way, God holds back certain lessons from us until we're mature enough to handle them. Jesus called his disciples to follow him one day at a time. Take up your cross daily and follow me. He said that in Luke 9.23. He also promised his followers that the Spirit would come later and lead them into truths that they could not handle then. So like those first disciples, Christ's followers today are not expected to know everything from beginning to end. Isn't that a relief? But we are called to live and follow day by day any faith knowledge being applied to our lives. You know, from each of these three parables, we see that faith is not a badge to be worn or knowledge to be flaunted. It's, it's like a little seed that's meant to be nurtured. Faith. So these four parables in Mark chapter four are told while Jesus is beside a lake of Galilee and with a large mass of people. There's uh, no special event or conversations with the opposition that has occurred before he's given these parables. This is just normal story teaching time. This is a message for everyone and anyone. And the message is that faith and the kingdom grow like a seed. Grows like a seed. In the, in the parable of the soils, we're told that there are some things that will work against that growing There are things that will work against a seed dying in the soil, sprouting to life. Things that will work against growing, work against maturing to bear fruit. And from that parable and the next parable about the growing seed, it's about the farmer, he goes to sleep, and whether he's asleep or awake, the seed is growing, though he doesn't know how it grows. Well, we can know that we can assist in scattering seed, preparing soil, nurturing, harvesting, but we really don't know how to make things grow. We don't. God has control of the growth of this kingdom and of our faith. We don't really know how to make faith or the kingdom sprout to life. God does. In the last of the three parables of the seeds, it's the mustard seed. It's the the smallest of seeds. It's like if you took a pencil and put a little prick mark on a piece of paper, that would be the size of a mustard seed. And it grows into a large tree that has a lot of branches. And, and, and we're told that we see that the kingdom and faith may seem like something small, but God transforms it into something large. And that he determines the design and shape of our faith and of his kingdom. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but, but looked at you know, what, a, what a seed is. 
you know, it's an amazing thing to look at an, an acorn. They're all falling now from your trees uh, in your neighborhoods. But uh, pick up a little acorn. It's about that big. And then you take a picture at, of, of what it will look like in 20 to 30 years. It's amazing. An oak is huge. It's huge. How is it that something that has this form and this size turns into something that is 60 to 100 feet tall and just massive? How does that transformation occur? God can do the same thing with us. And you may look at a little acorn and go, it's just impossible. It can't be. It can't happen. But God can transform you, your heart, your faith. His kingdom is also growing in the same way. It's changing. If you ever want to know, where is this all ending? Where is this going? This transformation. What, what is the final transformation? What is it going to be? You know, you, you look at an acorn and, and we know, we have knowledge. We know what it's going to turn out to be. We know this is going to turn into oak tree. But what about us? Well, God says that he's, he's transforming us into the likeness of his son. And, and there is this whole thing of, of the resurrection body. You have this one form now, but one day you'll have a different form. Acorn, oak tree. And there's more description of that in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you want to read about the resurrection body, and find out more about that. But here, in what we just read in Mark chapter 4, is one central thought for all three parables of the seeds. The kingdom of God and faith is grown and nurtured, and the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have authority over this spiritual growth. God causes life of the kingdom and faith to sprout and grow. The authority is his. Now, one of the four parables isn't about seeds. It's about light. And I can't fully explain why this is lumped together with the other parables. Um, but maybe you can ponder that one over, and uh, maybe the Lord will give you insight into that. But... There's probably maybe one connection between light and life, uh, like the Apostle John makes in his gospel account in chapter 1. But, but here's the deal with an oil lamp and the whole thing of uh, your light isn't meant to be hidden. Back then, they used oil lamps, uh, just a, a clay uh, little vessel with a large opening and then an opening for a wick. And, uh, and if you put it under a bowl, the flame is going to be smothered. No air can get to it. If, if you put it under your bed, uh, likely it will smother or it's going to catch the bedding on fire. Uh, so on one hand, you can try to tame or tone down the light so much you can extinguish it or you can let it burn in such a way that it's out of control in a destructive way. But your light of faith and life is meant to be brought out into the open and it needs to be put on a stand. What is your stand Christ has brought the light of life to you. Where, where do you set that? To burn and to shine bright, like he tells us to. Whereas I, I believe that that place, that stand is somewhere. It's somewhere wherever you live day to day. But you've got to find the place where your light of faith can be set to shine so that it's not smothered, hidden, or destructive so that's beneficial to all those around. Chapter 4, uh, parables emphasize Jesus', uh, Jesus authority over spiritual life. The gospel account then shifts from Jesus' authority over spiritual things 
to his authority over natural and material things. Remember that the gospel is about the person of Jesus. And the Roman audience who's listening to this is trying to figure out who is this God-man being introduced to them. So let's, let's take a look at the end of uh, chapter 4. We just see where Jesus, he uh, is asleep in the stern of the boat. They wake him up. He says, hey, quiet, be still. And the waves stop. And then the disciples, they're just terrified. Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Again, they understand that you don't talk and inanimate objects obey. I mean, this is, this is kind of strange. All right. Uh, and then Jesus crosses the lake, shows up at this uh, large cemetery area. Uh, there's people that actually live in this cemetery. And uh, one of them happens to be a man possessed by evil spirits. Jesus approaches him. Uh, The demons within say, what do you want? And Jesus says, who are you? And he says, I am legion, meaning that I I have many, many spirits within this man. So picking up in verse 11, Jesus, uh, he commands the spirits to leave, and they beg him to send them out, uh, not to send them out of the area. So uh, verse 11, a large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the evil spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off, and they reported this in the town and the countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. They were freaked out. So Jesus does leave, uh, and then he meets um, a synagogue ruler named Jairus. He crosses the lake. On the other side of the lake, Jairus approaches him, says, My daughter is deathly ill. She's going to die if you don't come. Please come. Jesus says, Okay, I'll go. And then in uh, verse 24, um, we pick up. So Jesus went with them. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to a bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. How frustrating is that? When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? So uh, going on into the the rest of chapter 5, we'll pick up back with this story in just a second. Um, Verse 38 to 43, Jesus goes on and he gets word. uh, Jairus and and Jesus received news that uh, Jairus' daughter is dead. And then Jesus... uh, goes on, presses on, and and pick up in verse 38. When they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kaum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. 
So Jesus, he can speak to wind and waves. Inanimate objects obey his voice. You know what? That looks a lot like the power of God when he has power to speak creation into existence called the power of fiat. Uh, humans, we don't have that. I know there's, you know, clap on, clap off, but that's about it. Um, Jesus has authority over nature, like the creator. Now, in the next instance, Jesus, he crosses the lake. He shows up in what's called a necropolis, uh, literally a city of the dead, in this uh, cemetery where people are living. Did you know that today in Cairo, nearly one, one million people live in cemeteries? This is kind of a weird phenomenon in the Middle East uh, that still happens today and was going on back then. Uh, the outcasts and uh, people that were pushed aside to the fringes of society would go live in the cemeteries. Now, Jesus is, is helping this man come out of cemetery life and allows the demons he's driving out of the man into a herd of 2,000 pigs. That was a large herd. The demons uh, then make the pigs go kamikaze, and they, they jump off a cliff into the Sea of Galilee. And, and if you think about that, I mean, that's, that's really nasty. 2,000 dead pigs uh, in the water. And, uh, you know, and then you think of the financial loss uh, to the owners of this herd. Um, you know, there's, there's a kind of this whole thing of you know, economic impact to the community, uh, the, the, the environmental impact. And you know, for someone who has authority over, spiritual realm, over the spiritual realm and authority over nature, some would question or accuse Jesus of being uh, environmentally or economically insensitive. But it seems that Jesus values one demented person more than a herd of pigs or the economic impact of losing them. The truth is that Jesus didn't cause the loss, nor did he approve of the loss. The demons did this. But Jesus permitted this in order to save one man. Here as elsewhere, we see that the Lord of nature and the Lord of heaven values people more than environment, products, or profits. It's also interesting to note that this one rescued man went on to tell people about Jesus in 10 different cities the league of cities called Decapolis. He begged to go with Jesus and say, I want to come with you. But Jesus said, no, go and, and stay with your family. Tell them what's happened to you. Not only does he tell his family, but he went to the whole region, 10 different cities. Jesus then uh, crosses the lake again after leaving the demon-possessed man or, or the man who is now in his right mind, uh, went across the Lake of Galilee again. He, he meets with Jairus, goes with the synagogue ruler to heal his, his sick daughter. Now, this was a huge deal for this Jewish leader to break with ranks and come to Jesus. I mean, by this time in Jesus' ministry, most synagogues in Israel had come to the decision to throw out members of the synagogue if they believed that Jesus was the Messiah. Now, this was a huge risk for Jairus coming and falling at Jesus' feet seeking his help because he was a synagogue ruler and that was a job. It wasn't a, vol a volunteer position. This was his career and he was risking his position and career as synagogue ruler. And on the way, we see the extent of Jesus' authority over nature as they walk along and the crowds are pressing in and we see that Jesus has authority over even uh, infectious microbes or even genetic disorder. A woman who has spent everything on cures comes to Jesus in one last desperate hope. <coughs> Excuse me. If I could just 
touch his clothes and be well. This gospel records that Jesus knew when power had gone out from him. Jesus' power and authority over the natural world actually emanated from him. Jesus uh, finds the woman, and you know, she's scared. She's like, oh no, you know, am I in trouble? I, I did something, you know, I didn't ask, and, and yet power came and healed me. And, uh, but anyway, he blesses her. He blesses her and says, go in, go in peace. You're free from your suffering. And then Jesus and Jairus get word that Jairus' daughter has died before they can even arrive. Jesus ignores the news. He ignores it, and he tells the father. He just, I just wonder if this is a whisper in the ear or if this was for everyone to hear, but don't be afraid. Just believe. Don't be afraid. Looks like everything should tell him to be afraid, but Jesus says not to. They arrive at the household, and the people laugh at Jesus when he says that the child is not dead but merely sleeping. I mean, they can tell a dead person from a live person, this girl is dead. What are you talking about? Jesus then with the father and mother and, and three of his disciples go into the room where Jairus' daughter lies dead. And then going against Jewish custom and laws, Jesus reaches out and takes, takes the dead girl's hand. Now, according to Jewish law, uh, Jesus is now ceremonially unclean because he's touched a dead body. And then also Jesus is breaking with Jewish custom uh, by touching a woman which is something that Jewish men and particularly rabbis were told not to do. But he does it anyway. And he says, get up. That's all he has to say. Get up, little girl. And he takes this girl back from death into life. See, the conclusion in the chapter of this story of the person of Jesus is that he has authority over death. Death has claimed this girl, but Jesus took her back from death and the laws of the natural world. Jesus has authority over all things, everything, in spiritual realms and the natural realm of our material, physical existence. He has authority over that too. And the big question for us today is, do you trust Jesus' ultimate authority over your spiritual life and your physical life? Isaac and the guys, you guys can come on up here as I wrap this up. We see the man who had demons driven out trust in the spiritual authority of Jesus. This man, he wanted to go with Jesus. He wanted to join him in his work. And uh, Jesus said, no. Go home. Leave the city of the dead. Go and tell your family what the Lord has done for you. Now, I don't know, maybe... Maybe you desire one thing. Maybe you've, you've built your spiritual case for why you should have something or do something and you're, you're presenting that to God. Will you trust Jesus' authority, his spiritual authority over your life if he tells you no? No. You're not going to get it. No, you're not going to do that. Instead, this is what I want you to do. Or instead, this is what I want you to have. Are you going to listen and receive Jesus' spiritual authority? If Jesus has rescued you spiritually, he has saved you. He has spiritual authority in your life. Will you receive and obey it? Or will you throw it off and do your own thing? 
The second question, will you trust the authority Jesus has over your physical, material life? Jairus risked his career because he loved his daughter more than his career. Jesus also had to trust, Jairus also had to trust Jesus in that moment when everyone else was saying, send Jesus packing. He can't do anything about this. This is, this is a, a, a physical, natural matter. But Jesus instead was whispering to him, don't be afraid. Just believe. I can take care of these things too. How about you? Are you willing to risk it? To trust Jesus in, in some very physical, material situation. He is Lord over spiritual things, but he's also Lord over physical things. All the earth and everything and everyone in it really do belong to him. Psalm 24. I just want to read this as we go into our time of communion. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it upon the, on the seas and established it upon the waters. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. He will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God, his Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, O God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the, mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is he? The King of glory, the Lord Almighty. He is the King of glory. He is the one who stood in our place as the substitute. He is the one who does have the clean hands and pure heart. And he's the one who can impart that to us. He did it through the cross. You trust him in that spiritual matter? I know a lot of you do. I know a lot of you do. We also trust him in those physical matters. You know, he gave us a very physical sign to celebrate the spiritual matter. He gave us bread. Gave us the wine, the juice, his, his body, and the blood. He takes care of both worlds. He really does. And as you take communion today, as you hold that physical stuff in your hand, I hope that with just as much trust that you have in him taking care of the spiritual matters of your heart, that you'll trust him that he'll take care of the physical matters too. Lord Jesus, in these next few moments, increase our trust and our faith in what you can do, that you really are the master and Lord over everything, that you have authority of, over all parts of life, not just spiritual parts of life. God, we love you. Thank you for what you did. Living the life we should have lived, dying the death we should have died. We celebrate what you did at the cross for us, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.